Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Nitai Daitel, Senior Program Officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I am pleased to introduce our guests for today's program, unpacking the implications of the downturn in U.S.-China relations on multilateral climate cooperation. Briefly, as their full bios can be found on our website, Michael Davidson is an Assistant Professor at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Davidson's teaching and research focuses on the engineering implications and institutional conflicts inherent in deploying low carbon energy at scale, specializing in China, India, and the United States. Before joining UCSD, he was a postdoctoral research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, a Fulbright fellow at Tsinghua University, and worked for the Natural Resources Defense Council. He is a fellow of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Joanna Lewis is the Provost Distinguished Associate Professor of Energy and Environment and Director of the Science, Technology, and International Affairs Program at Georgetown University. She is also a faculty affiliate in the China Energy Group at the U.S. Department of Energy's Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. She has worked for several governmental and non-governmental organizations and was a visiting scholar at Tsinghua University, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and the East-West Center. She, too, is a fellow of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Moderating today's conversation will be Alex Wong, Professor of Law at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a leading expert on environmental law and the law and politics of China. His research focuses on the interaction of law and institutions in China and the United States. And prior to joining UCLA, Professor Wong was a senior attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council based in Beijing and the founding director of NRDC's China Environmental Law and Governance Project. He following a thread here, is also a fellow of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Alex, the floor is yours. Thanks so much, Nitai. Uh, and thanks to the National Committee for organizing this conversation about U.S. and China dynamics and, and climate change. It's a real pleasure to be talking with uh, two old friends, uh, Michael and Joanna, and who are among the leading experts on U.S.-China climate relations in the world. And it's a uh, 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 I'm really pleased to have this chance to talk with you all and hear what you think on these these topics. Uh, so why don't we just dive right in? I mean, I think the the first question, you know, where uh, the the so-called COP27, the international climate negotiation meetings, are coming up next uh, next week in Egypt. Uh, we all know that uh, tensions between the U.S. and China are at at their highest, uh, the highest they've been in in uh, in recent decades. Uh, we know that just in August, in response to Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, Beijing suspended official bilateral uh, talks on climate action. And um, so right now we we enter the COP in this general state of affairs. And so I guess the, the first question I'd ask, uh, and maybe uh, ask Joanna to kick it off for us, is to a comment on what you think these dynamics mean for the COP and what it means for uh, Chinese and American climate action. Yeah, well, I think it's you know important to remember um, that it is, I think, in both China and the United States' interests to engage on climate change. You know, both countries' presidents want to be viewed as global leaders on this issue and and see this issue as a domestic priority. So. You know, I think 
uh, let me touch first on the importance of U.S.-China bilateral cooperation on climate change as pertains to the international climate negotiations, and then and then bring it back to COP27 specifically. Um, you know, it's important to remember, right, that we've seen engagement and coordination between China and the U.S. as key to um, to really important progress being made in the multilateral um, climate sphere, right? So, of course. We point to the Paris Agreement in 2015. I think many of us believe that that, that agreement would not exist today um, if we had not had concerted bilateral effort between the U.S. and China, um, you know, really led by then Secretary Kerry, you know, going back to 2013 and, and really, you know, you could point to decades of U.S.-China engagement. Um, but really, you know, elevated in 2013 with the U.S.-China Climate Change Working Group. Um, and the 2014 joint statement between the U.S. and China, where their U.S., you know, where their US, where their NDCs were announced a year ahead of Paris, I think that was really what led to you know the world, um, you know, building momentum uh, around these these targets, which led to the eventual um, adoption of the Paris Agreement in in 2015, and and you know because the leadership of China and the U.S. as the two largest emitters still, you know, and sort of the the figurehead leaders of, of the, the so-called developed and developing world, right, just really yeah. important in the context of these negotiations. So, you know, I think that, and then we saw this again in Glasgow, right, just a year ago now, um, you know, the dynamic's very different from where we are today, but um, we're just, you know, for, in the final 48 hours of the, um, the meeting, we saw this surprise announcement of a U.S.-China joint declaration, um, these back-to-back -back press conferences from um, Secretary Kerry, Minister Xie, uh, that again announced this new joint statement, right, and, and then relaunched a U.S.-China working group, and that's what got paused back in August. Yeah. Um, well, before, if I could interject with a yeah. question, you know, what, what's your take? I, I totally agree with you on the value, the value of that cooperation pre-Paris. You know, I, I felt that the Glasgow cooperation was less, it felt less important, certainly, because, uh, you know, it, it just, it didn't have the same impact, I think, as sort of the agreement leading into Paris. It's a, a question for maybe both of you. You know, there is a debate about cooperation versus competition that we're going to sort of explore in this and I'm curious as to whether you think, I would love your comments on the changing nature of cooperation. Do you, do you think that that type of cooperation is less important or do you think it's as important as it ever was? Like the sort of joint announcement kind of showing that both the top emitters are on board with, with, uh, with climate action. Well, look, I would just say that, um, you know, the, the joint um, declaration that was signed in Glasgow, you know, that was the first um, the first time we'd had something like that since, you know, back during the Obama administration, right? Because the, you know, we essentially didn't have any um, real U.S.-China engagement on climate during the Trump administration. So you were really, you know, essentially starting from scratch and, and, and in a really different U.S.-China climate, right? Now, U.S.-China climate is not the right word, you know, U.S.-China relationship, you know, a brand new set of, of, of economic and security tensions, right, which, which we'll dive into. So, I think that um, you know the type of cooperation we were seeing during the Obama administration, which were about technology cooperation, things like the U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center joint R&D, that is not that is not um, happening in this current political climate for a variety of reasons. Where we're really looking at 
strategic competition around clean energy technologies. And so I think it was still important, you know, to have cooperation around things like methane emissions, you know, again, things that were missing from China's NDC. So still significant, um, but I agree with you. It's a different type of cooperation, uh, still important, still important, you know, to the momentum of the international negotiations. So, you know, going into COP27, I do think it's it's problematic that, you know, the um, the, the lead negotiators, you know, the heads of the delegations have not been in the same communication that they were going into other big, mm-hmm. um, other big cops, you know, but this is a lower six cop than Glasgow, than Paris, you know, there's not a big, um, a big global agreement on the table. There's not even a, a leader statement on the table, potentially. Yeah. This is really a, a, a cop with a different focus. And so, I, I think, you know, hopefully, um, you know, th- hopefully they won't sort of derail the focus of the negotiations, which is really yeah. much more on loss and damage developing country issues. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to also ask uh, both of you to what, what do you expect uh, to see out of the U.S. and China at, at the cause, with, you know, in particular uh, in relation to uh, each other? You've sort of already gestured at part of the exercise maybe just trying to show leadership right that might be one of the the goals you've also noted that maybe hard to get this kind of technical cooperation that has been put like for example from Glasgow out, out on the table one of the things that seems to be coming out in the media coverage of China is that China's been emphasizing common but differentiated responsibilities this notion that developed nations uh, have different responsibilities or more responsibilities than developing nations and they've made a call for a global clean energy partnership with all of the different kind of global south organizations, you know, uh, you know ASEAN, uh, BRICS, and and others, and so they seem to be signaling that you know maybe in the face of all of this kind of U.S. talk about competition that they're trying to shore up their alliances. So I'm curious as to what you know. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that or or other dynamics that you see might be part of the U.S. or Chinese strategy as they head into to COP27? Yeah, I think that the, I mean, certainly the cooperation dynamics are have changed remarkably since the Obama administration, um, but also the need for cooperation has shifted. Um, I think prior to Paris, there was a lot of uncertainty that we could get a um, consensus, unanimous, internationally agreed uh, uh, commitment like the Paris Agreement on the books that would push countries to make these commitments and then come back each year and on a regular schedule to update them. Uh, The need for cooperation between US and China has shifted dramatically since then. Now, um, what I see is that we need to um, push both countries to uh, stop getting in each other's ways of reducing emissions, um, putting up barriers and other um, policies that would uh, make it harder to do the clean energy transition in both countries and in other countries. And notably, Alex, you mentioned these Global South partnerships. Um, if U.S.-China tensions um, uh, um, get much worse and you start to see even uh, higher costs and more difficulties with supply chains and more tensions, um, uh, U.S. consumers are going to feel the pinch. But more likely in these other countries that are facing a really a very visceral choice um, based on affordability concerns about what energy choices to choose from, that's going to be most concerning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
I, I mean, I see any kind of partnerships that U.S. and China want to make with with um, other uh, developing countries to try to help them on the low carbon transition as a boon for the climate. Um, I would like to see a little bit less of a zero sum competition between U.S. and China on securing those partnerships. I think there is still space to work together on these, despite the way the way the current tensions are. But nevertheless, we know that it's going to take a lot of money, a lot of capital and technology uh, to help global South countries and complete this low carbon transition in both China and the US as the largest R&D spenders, uh, the largest economies and huge uh, sources of FDI are gonna be crucial players in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just think it's, it's really amazing if you think back to where we were a year ago versus where we are now and just how the world has changed on this issue. I mean, you know, remember back in fall of 2021 when President Xi had made this announcement at UNGA about how China was going to stop financing um, coal plants abroad, right? And this really, everyone was very excited about this. And there were all these commitments being made in the G7 and elsewhere about uh, how everyone was going to stop building coal and, and really, you know, going into COP uh, 26, there was just all this momentum about the phase down of fossil fuels and moving away from coal, right? And now here we are a year later with the Russia-Ukraine conflict and everyone is scrambling for more fossil fuels, you know, and you're seeing just this um, backsliding, right, on a lot of the commitments that were made across Europe. Um, you're seeing, you know, Germany really, I think, you know, really trying to get out of a lot of the commitments that were made and and you know you see the developing world looking at this right and and this is going to come out i think very strongly at cop 27 um which is on the african continent right and there's just going to be this focus on uh what is going on you know um why are we sort of pulling back on a lot of these commitments what is the role right of the of a lot of these financing pledges and uh, you know and i think this is just really about um, you know, how the commitments that have been made, you know, what did right. they mean? You know, how can we make sure that, that there's going to be follow through, right? And then, of right. course, China's yeah. at the center of a lot of this. That's such a great point. And I think, you know, we, we are, my, my the, the sense that you're getting these days is also just that climate impacts are so much more on the forefront of everyone's mind, right? It's in the headlines every day. I think media coverage has really started to change and and, and report I think in a more substantial and better way about just the the climate impacts that we're facing every day, and so that's the context with, with within which this uh, discussion will be uh, happening. Now, on this, um, I want to come back to a point that Michael was making. You know, you're you're essentially gesturing at this possibility of sort of in this competition doing harm to our ability to pursue climate action. So maybe I want to ask a question to both of you about. You know, clearly, this notion of competition is out there and has become central to the Biden administration's uh, China strategy, right? They, they've put out this notion, the, the pithy phrasing of it, I, I believe, is invest and align and compete, right? So just, you know, invest at home, ally with, with people, and then compete on that basis. Um, so what, what do you all think about the prospects of that actually driving uh, positive change in the sort of space race analogy versus going south in a way that does more harm than than good, right? You know, arguably, Inflation Reduction Act is a really positive sign. You know, in the invest category from from the United States, right? When it's a big move, and we're all excited to see how that that plays out. 
but um, you know, you know, we've all sort of been thinking about this issue of how it can accelerate in a positive direction versus go in a in a negative slowdown direction. I'm curious as to your thoughts on 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 this this dynamic. You know, I'll I'll take a take a stab at it. I think there's of course elements, uh, positive elements and negative elements in the new framing, right? Um, we know that the costs of clean energy have come down quite a bit. Uh, due to very stiff global competition, and they need to go down even further, and competition is going to help with that. We know that we need a lot of technologies that we don't have commercially available today. That's not going to come just from governments making um, R&D investments. It's going to come from private sector. It's motivated by competition, competitive firms accessing capital resources globally. So we know that we need all of those elements. Um, the challenge is that um, if you take a comp competitive uh, stance and you insist on a more national competitiveness angle, then you might put up barriers to enable the lowest cost technology and the best innovations uh, to diffuse. Um, and we do see elements of those as well, where you have an increasing turn towards protectionism, uh, which would make the whole process of deploying, developing and deploying low carbon technologies that much harder uh, not just for U.S. and China, but for the rest of the world. Yeah, um, and you know, we we the three of us uh, were recent co-authors on a, a piece that came out in Science Policy Forum, kind of get, in part getting at this issue of the risks of uh, decoupling. Uh, I don't know if either if you want to comment a little bit more about you know the tagline on that was you know the you know sometimes the the medicine is worse than the the cure is worse than the disease. I think uh, so. I don't know if you guys want to talk about that, you know, the, the paper basically unpacks economic and, and security risks uh, associated with decoupling or integration. Yeah, I mean, we were motivated by the policy debates that are occurring um, in the US and Europe and elsewhere around decoupling from China um, that really lack specificity and an objective assessment of the risks and benefits of, of that policy direction. And so, um, our methodology was we selected five technologies, emerging and mature. Uh, we went through, uh, we focused on economic and national security risks, as you mentioned. Uh, and we tried to uh, score uh, across each of the technologies, these different um, metrics, uh, went down to the component level, and then we aggregated those up to each technology. And we came up with some subjective assessments and our kind of broad take broad um, conclusions are that economic risks are much more heterogeneous uh, than national security risks. Uh, some economic risks include the risk of supply chain disruptions. And for those uh, policy recourse strategy might be a selective process of diversification. On the other hand, national security risks are much more homogeneous and seem to be quite muted across these technologies, which seem to indicate that uh, we should be focusing less on uh, using or justifying using national security uh, angles, the, the decoupling agenda, particularly in low carbon technology uh, from China. Um, I mean, we also conclude, and this is based on you know, work uh, by Joanna and others, that uh, government facilitation is desirable um, to pursue joint demonstrations for new technologies. Um, and that there's a need for diversification and different technology pathways uh, that both US and China, again, as the world's two largest R&D um, uh, superpowers in clean energy and in many other areas, uh, need to take the lead on. And so, yeah, John, John, I don't know if you wanted to comment 
on on that. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think that this is, you know, we've seen this real shift in how Washington is thinking about climate policy, right? Where, um, you know, when I came here um, almost 20 years ago now, right, we were really thinking about market-based responses, right? How we can get a cap and trade bill through Congress and all this, right? And we really shifted to an industrial policy strategy, right? And when you look at the IRA, it's it's an it's a green industrial policy. It's really about um, you know thinking about how we can build clean energy industries here at home. And and there's nothing wrong with that, right? But we really need to be, I think, you know, we need to be frank about the trade-offs about doing that and what you know how that could actually slow down our ability to deploy low carbon technologies at scale not just here in, in in the united states but globally you know particularly in the developing world because when you look at global climate targets when you look at where you know clean energy technologies need to be deployed you know to meet uh, 1.5 degree goals right but by um, the end of the century it's it's mostly in the developing world these are places that are you know where you need these technologies to be as, as inexpensive as possible right and and Michael very nicely documented with with some um, colleagues in a in a recent nature paper you know the role that China there's have played in just driving down the costs of, of solar and other technologies right to make them more affordable. Um, for for the world, right, and solving the climate crisis. So when you start to decouple from China, which is now, you know, like it or not, um, just has the dominant, uh, is just dominant in these clean energy supply chains, right, is just dominant in batteries, dominant in wind, dominant in solar. Um, we have to be just very clear about the cost repercussions of that, right? And, and the security issues are, as we evaluate in the science paper, are, are relatively minimal, often managed, right? right. And yeah. so it's just it's it's just not a sort of one size fits all solution. And and so we're just sort of asking for a nuanced approach and a strategic approach to sort of how we handle this and being. Um, just being, you know, conscious of sort of what are the climate trade-offs versus the sort right. of economic and security trade-offs. Yeah, that, that's a great way to frame it, I think, to, to think that there are climate trade-offs for this move, which is already beginning, right? So America is is engaging industrial policy, and the hope is either to reshore manufacturing or to so-called friendshore, right, get it into uh, friendly countries. And, and one question is, is that realistic? Right. I'm, I'm curious as to where you all stand right now. And, and you know, part of the answer may just be it's hard to know. We, we need to do a lot more research. We probably need more investment in these types of things. But I'm curious as to where you all stand on that, because it's it's not it's not obvious that this will succeed. Right. There's there's plenty of risk in, in this endeavor. Right. I mean, I'm doing some research on this topic now, yeah. right? And and I mean, it's it's difficult. And when you look at you know the the, the non-China countries that are involved in these supply chains, um, and and first of all, a lot of the the non-Chinese countries are actually Chinese-owned uh, mm -hmm. facilities, right? Who mm -hmm. who have, for the most part, due to trade restrictions, sort of built um, shifted their plans. They've shifted so supply chains to Southeast Asia and elsewhere, right? So they're technically still Chinese. Um, but you you basically see if if your goal is to sort of diversify to um, you know friendlier markets, you're basically you know there's a handful of countries that are well positioned. It's primarily in East Asia, Japan, um, South Korea, 
Um, you know, if your goal is to sort of, uh, you know, try to help um, other developing countries sort of build capacity, uh, you know, that is a that is a difficult thing, you know, in, in countries where you don't necessarily have the um, the capacity to kind of build up these industries. And you find that like in particularly in Africa, South America, the main um, parts of the supply chain that are there are the extractive industries. It's the mining, you know, of rare earths, for example, um, which are, you know, these are dirty extractive industries. Um, and, th and that's sort of the only thing you see kind of, you know, outside of China. And there's other issues, right, with sort of building up those industries um, in these parts of the world. And, and these are often not necessarily things like the U.S. wants to reshore, right? They're looking more for the kind of the higher value added um, refining, you know, sort of parts of the industry. So I think right. it's complex. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, and honestly, like in, in the research we're doing to kind of um, characterize where the, the non-China supply chains are and, you know, what this would look like, like the data is not great, right? It's, um, and, right. and so we're, I, I think it, I think this has to be carefully thought through. Right. In the environmental law area, you know, there, there's a lot of discussion kind of bubbling up now about, you know, permitting issues, you, you know, how, how do you speed up deployment while still being true to the environmental guardrails and all and conflicts between different environmental issues. So this is going to be a really contested area. Yeah, very important. Years. Uh, I know, Michael, do you have a comment? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Just basic point on, on this you know the the basic endeavor to kind of reshore or friendshore. You know what? Where where are you now on the 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 risks and the likelihood of a success in that area? Yeah, I think one of the I think contributions of um, our science paper is really to distinguish between a domestic only onshore strategy, which is sometimes seen as being the only response to concentration in China and a diversification strategy. Diversification doesn't mean we bring it all home. It means that we have some diversification across multiple countries in case of supply chain disruptions, for example, which can occur due to natural disasters as much as government intervention or threats of trade embargoes or something like that. Or a pandemic. Um, so, or a pandemic, right? Um, the pandemic, of course, is pandemic, it's global, but it, you know, it can have localized impacts. Um, but, you know, more specific natural disasters like, you know, the Fukushima um, tsunami and the impacts that had on Japan supply chains, you know, those kinds of things, of course, merit some consideration. That's a diversification that calls for diversification. And there's a higher bar if we want to have fully domestic onshore for the reason to mitigate those risks. Um, but I will say the Inflation Reduction Act, since we're kind of talking about this quite a bit, um, which is passed over the summer, is the first major piece of climate legislation, you know, ever by some counts, um, compared to the last big legislation, the Recovery Act. Um, this is a huge increase, you know, up from uh, roughly 90 billion in the Recovery Act, which is passed after the 2008 financial crisis, up to 370 billion in climate and environmental investments and had an explicit climate focus. This is overwhelmingly good and includes many industrial policy elements that Joanna talked about. Um, so specifically predictable long-term credits for renewable energy, as well as other newer technologies like carbon capture. Uh, it has manufacturing subsidies. These are all elements that contributed to China's success in its own clean tech uh, supply chains, for example, as well as consumer facing rebates and, and many other elements that are all very good. Now, but they do present some challenges for US-China relations. Um, one is that they don't do anything with the existing or prospective 
uh, trade remedies that are in place uh, that are currently making um, technologies um, imported into the U.S. more expensive, making it more expensive for U.S. consumers to deploy those technologies, and likely making slowing down learning processes, as we talked about in a separate paper. Um, and you know, nothing encapsulates this point more than this a huge kerfuffle that we had in May, where the Department of Commerce was considering. Um, it took a trade case that was considering slapping tariffs of up to 200% or more on imported panels, not from China, but from other countries, Southeast Asia, like Joanna mentioned, uh, that basically ground the entire solar industry to a halt. You had 70 gigawatts of deployment at risk, 100,000 jobs, according to the Solar Energy Industry Association, that were at risk because of how far some of these trade remedies could be taken. And, you know, legitimate uh, reasons on their part that the administration might actually go that far. Um, now, the, the Biden administration had to step in to say, no, wait a minute, we're not going to put those enormous tariffs on it. And they put a two-year pause on it. And that was enough to kind of quiet down the industry and get things rolling again. Uh, but that was, a, that was a Band-Aid fix for a much more systemic problem. And I think this kind of this challenge of how do you know how do we and to what extent do we onshore all of the clean tech manufacturing supply chain is with us for some time and so my kind of short response to that Alex is I don't think it's realistic to have a completely onshore keep it seal it off within our borders uh, domestic supply chain for all the things that we're going to need to combat climate change I do think there is an important role for U.S. manufacturing and for other U.S. parts of the value chain. Um, as we see in other technologies like wind, where Joanna has done a lot of work on. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's really important for us to think about hey, what kinds of policies can we do to support the manufacturing employment and support the other policy objectives that we have, while also not stomping on global supply chains and global learning, which has got us to the point now where we can actually envision and uh, uh, visualize a hundred percent clean energy system. Right. Um, I want to shift gears to the question of how China is doing on meeting its own climate goals. So, um, as I think most people will know, China has a 2060 carbon neutrality goal and a goal to peak uh, before 2030, uh, peak emissions by before 2030. And so, I'm I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are on how that's going these days, right? We've heard a lot about the, the China's construction of coal-fired power plants, even as they're building out a lot of clean tech. And then I want to ask you for a specific, if you were to be able to implement right now one major policy change to help this uh, movement uh, on climate action along, what would you pick? So the broadly is what is China doing on climate recently and, and what are the challenges that it's facing? Well, the similar challenges that are faced by other countries um, is energy security, right? That's top of mind in for China's planners, European planners, American planners, everybody. Um, and that's recognizing that energy systems serve multiple policy objectives and climate environments are come along a little late to this, but energy security and affordability are always top of mind. Um, and so China had this very massive power outage in 2021 and had some more localized power outages again in 2022. And those are driven in 
um, in part by this volatility with global um, fossil fuel markets, but also driven by incomplete reforms in China to its power system and power markets. And the much more um, a focused uh, response to that has reached the highest levels where we saw President Xi Jinping and outgoing Premier Li Keqiang talk about this issue, energy security, much more prominently than what you saw before. Um, unfortunately, they're also taking some of the wrong lessons where they're doubling down on coal power deployment in certain areas, thinking that this was because there wasn't enough coal power capacity to provide demand, which is not the case. Um, um, China actually has a very diverse set of renewable energy resources geographically and has the envy of the world, the world's largest ultra high voltage transmission network where it can transmit that power across large distances. Uh, so when the sun is shining out west, the you know folks in the east can take advantage of it, et cetera. Uh, so I think China's lessons and what I would sort of recommend to help address these energy security currents while also staying in the low carbon path is to diversify more, to diversify across renewable and nuclear energy sources, which are uh, much less uh, susceptible to global volatility in fossil fuel markets, and um, to double down on reforms of power markets and transmission operation that can allow that energy to get to market in an efficient, cost-effective way. Right. Yeah, I was I was I'm glad you threw in a wonkier grid reform recommendation. I was almost afraid you weren't going to bring that in. So, uh, jo Joanna, what, what do you think? Yeah, I knew I knew he would, which is why I wanted him to go first. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, you know, Michael and others have just done really important work on, you know, pointing out that the challenges to um, China's, you know, decarbonization are at this point, they're really not technical. <laughs> it's really the political economy of China's power sector transition right now that are really holding up a lot of what should be happening there. I mean, when you see these just really um, distorted incentives behind building new coal plants, right? It, I mean, it, and again, yes, energy security, right? But it, it's not a shortage. It's not a real shortage, right? In that it's not a supply demand imbalance. It, it is, but it's it's an artificial one, right? And it's due to these bottlenecks in the grid and the way that the grid is structured and the way that power is moved around the country and the way that these markets are set up that they're not real markets and who has control right over these things and the way things are priced. And, and again, a lot of it is just the fact that you are just sort of trying to operate, um, you're trying to sort of introduce market signals and what is primarily still operating is a non-market economy um, with very powerful interests, right? Um, primarily state-owned enterprises and primarily the coal industry and, and the, the large power companies. And so you just have this, this issue where you, you do have, you know, increasingly large amounts of clean energy um, that is still, it's being integrated in the grid at, at much larger amounts than it used to be. You know, we do see decreasing curtailment numbers, but you just have these um, real inefficiencies in um, the way coal plants are being operated, you know, which is very low capacity factors. And you just have this just really inefficiency in the way power is still being um, priced, right? And, and just being, um, operated in the grid, even though you have this super high tech, as Michael mentioned, you know, ultra high voltage transmission, and and you there's just sort of no technical basis for a lot of these. I right. think are really just political. Yeah, that's, that's so, a great point, and and I think you see these uh, political skirmishes being fought in so many different areas, right? Like, for example, I I recently worked, spent a year working with Chinese partners on uh, the emissions trading system, yes. 
yes. and you know, the, the, for those who don't follow this, you know, in in essence, the system turns out to be, you know, it's it's a system that subsidizes more efficient coal-fired power plants and uh, taxes less efficient coal-fired power plants. And there's ways that you know, lots of people are proposing different ways that you could make make it more. Uh, create more dramatic incentives, for example, for clean energy. Like you, you could build it in so that if you built more clean energy, you would benefit from the subsidies of the, the system. But, you know, just the way the politics of that has played That's out, yeah. <laughs> it's really turned into a way to kind of edge the coal, coal fleet in a more efficient direction rather yes. than something more dramatic and again and and you know this this the that system was originally designed to cover eight sectors right including the heavy industrial sectors which are still the vast majority of china's energy consumption right but they're they're not yet right part of that it's it's still um starting with the power sector right so there's you know again a lot of what china has to do on emissions is still about um, about the you know it's about heavy industry and again a lot of this is responding to economic stimulus measures and and what's happening kind of in the the zero COVID you know sort of what's happening there so yeah absolutely well um, I think we're about at time so it's it's uh, always great to hear your thoughts on on everything and thanks again to the National Committee for uh, having us here to to discuss these important issues and. Uh, hand it back to Nitai. Thank you all so much for sharing your thoughts and insights with us today. I'd also like to thank my colleagues, the National Committee staff members behind the scenes who helped me make today's interview possible. We hope that those who have tuned in today found the interview both interesting and informative and that you will join us for future National Committee programming down the road. Thank you all again and have a great day. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.